Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is the three pillars of freight operations with my friend Robert Bain. Robert is the Director of Client Engagement at CDL 1000. And CDL 1000 is a technology-driven third-party logistics company based in Chicago, Illinois, also one of the fastest growing companies in America. Robert is well known as the strongest man in logistics, but that's not all. Robert is a flat out expert at freight operations. So check out our conversation. So how's it going, Robert? It's going great, man. It's a beautiful day here in Chicago. Awesome. Awesome. Robert, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Certainly. So like I said, I'm in Chicago. My name is Robert Bain. I'm the VP of operations at CDL 1000. I oversee all of our operations post-sale in our truckload division. We have locations, a couple locations here in the Chicagoland area and a reach across the entire United States with our brokerage and our, our asset base. So that is, uh, that is us and that is me. And also I am the strongest man in logistics. I was just going to say, don't forget that part. <laughs> yeah, that's a little important. Yeah. Elaborate on the strongest man in logistics. We'll get back to CDL 1000 in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. So I was an athlete my whole life. I played soccer, believe it or not. I don't look like it anymore. But I got into uh, lifting when I was a freshman in college. I uh, was always fascinated by strength and then got into powerlifting in my early 30s as soccer was winding down for me. And I, I played in high school, I played in college, I played a little professional ball, and then life happened and, and Father Time, who was undefeated, also happened to me. But I, f- I found this crazy sport of powerlifting. And I always tell this story of what made me fall in love with it. I went to my first meet. It was actually, I competed on my birthday on the day I turned 32. And the weigh-ins for the meet were the day before. My wife and I went out to this this gym in Sycamore, Illinois. It was a high school gym. And go in, I weigh in, I get ready. I say, hey, let's go check out the meet. And so we walk in and I don't know anything about anything when it comes to powerlifting. I've been training at a YMCA. People tell me about it, but I, I don't know anything about the meat atmosphere. And so I see all these people around this guy. He's in this crazy contraption, which I come to know as a monolith later on. And I see him in this very tight singlet. I don't know what this is. It's a canvas suit. I find out years later. Again, I said no clue. And there's somewhere in the mid to high 900s, possibly a thousand pounds on the squat bar. And he's squatting. Whoa. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. We'll come back to that. He's And there's this person yelling down, back, all these different cues and commands. This is a little weird. And they say up. And as soon as his person says up, he starts to drive the bar backwards and his face explodes. There's blood coming out of his nose. It shoots out, which was unbelievable. And my wife, my wife watches this and go, looks at me and goes, this is what you want to do? I'm like, absolutely. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and that started this love affair with with powerlifting, and it's it's now progressed to. I also now compete in those canvas suits. It's called equipped lifting. It's a very technical and, and different form than people are used to seeing at a, at a commercial gym. But it it gives you the support and the ability to lift weights that I think you had the reaction earlier of that, that people can't really fathom. As a for instance, my best lifts in competition are a thousand thirty five pound squat, a six ten bench and a 705 deadlift and the best in training. I've got a 1095 squat, a 685 bench, and a 740 deadlift. Not all the same day necessarily, but yeah, so it it's wild. And it's the extreme of the extreme. So people hear like someone has a 500 pound squat, 
that's in the top 1% of humanity. And me and my friends regularly double that. And so it's a, it's a very interesting niche culture that has now taken me all over the world and all over the United States. I've competed for Team USA. My children compete with me. It's really been, it's been an awesome time on the platform. It's what a way to spend a decade. So it's helped my life. Yeah. I, I also, I was listening. I was at the gym, not lifting. A, I don't think I lifted 500 pounds over the course of the 45 minutes I was there. <laughs> it's not I, Everyone has different levels. Yeah. I was listening to your podcast. I know you're a podcaster too. So uh, I'm always interested in having other podcasters on the show. Do you currently, are you currently doing a podcast? Yeah. So I have one that I just started. So I ended my relationship with uh, Strength and Anger. I had a great time running that. Just to be very frank, it was very difficult for us to coordinate schedules anymore. And so yes, I moved on and actually created a podcast called The Backspot Podcast. It's available on Spotify and its focus is on all things strength sports. What I do is I interview people at different stages in their lifting career. I've talked to a couple of teenagers, so people that are just really starting to get into some of the world-class meets. And then I've talked to some folks, one of my really dear friends, Leah Reichman, who is the all-time strongest woman in the world. She posted a, this past April, a 954 squat, a 500-pound bench, and a six, I want to say 600-pound deadlift or 620. Unbelievable numbers for anybody, but she holds the all-time world record squat and all-time total for the ladies, and she will be the first woman to squat a thousand pounds. And I got to interview her as the first one for that that podcast, and that's probably the other cool benefits of this hobby is I, I get to meet unbelievable people all across the world, and then I got to do the same thing in my profession. So it's just really a, a neat way to you know connect with people. That's the coolest thing about doing the podcast. I get to meet so many nice people. And once in a while, I go to a conference to confirm that they're all actually real people and not some sort of elaborate trick that's being played <laughs> on me. But I will say, I, I just listened to a book and it was called Outlive. It's a book by Peter Atia. He's a doctor. And so it gets really into longevity stuff and what people die of. And they die of basically four things. Heart stuff, brain stuff, cancer, and metabolic problems. And seems as if the focus of the book was a lot of the problems are metabolic, which mean too much sugar usually. And if you can add muscle, <laughs> you can add muscle. And basically the, the, one of the messages of the book was exercise. And he, he said something I thought was very shocking, which was if I had a choice between using two interventions, one being medicine, the other being exercise, I'll use exercise. I prefer it. It's better. He goes, it's the impacts. And yeah, it's, it's funny. And he says, you want to argue about keto? You want to argue about intermittent fasting? He goes, we have these holy wars about all this stuff. He goes, I'll tell you what, go for a walk. That's it. Go for a walk. Eat and then go for a walk. <laughs> and I was like, if I ever have an example of how important movement is, it was in 2020 when I blew my arm apart uh, training during lockdowns. And so I ruptured my distal tendon and in my left arm. And I was told I would not lift full bore. So being released it on my overcognizance for eight months because of just the nature of the injury and, and whatnot, they had to put two screws in my arm and the whole nine. I saw that as a challenge. And so I was released from physical therapy in less than four months. And I was back on the platform and benched my biggest raw bench ever, my first 400-pound raw bench, seven months and four days post-surgery. -sur post and the biggest thing I did was 
I moved the other three quadrants of my body as much as I could until I got some movement back in that left arm. And then it became a full-time job of rehabbing that, but it was all about the movement. And my wife and I studied this major and I only, you're going to have atrophy when you have major injuries. You have a surgery, you're going to lose some musculature. I only had a 13% atrophy in my left arm that entire time. And again, this all started with literally me just walking with a weighted vest and my arms in the sling walking around our neighborhood. Yep. I say this to everybody I know I'm getting older and I tell my friends this, I said, at some point, all of us have to go and rehab something. And I was in an accident uh, 10, 11 years ago. I was hit by a truck. And by the way, I was running a little third party logistics company. And I used to always say, we cross train, we document processes because if somebody gets hit by a truck, we will all be, we'll be covered. And then I got hit by a truck. <laughs> and I remember one of my guys, one of the guys brought my laptop to the hospital and he said, man, when you said somebody might get hit by a truck, I thought it was just the thing to metaphor. say, like, you know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> metaphor. I was like, yeah, somebody got hit by a truck, but I did rehab for three years and they would, I remember them saying, you'll always limp. And I took that kind of as a challenge. I don't want to limp. <laughs> and I had a number of surgeries and you go to that physical therapy over and over again. It's, it's, but by the way, I went, I tore a rotator cuff and I went over there and I said, can you help me with this rotator cuff? So they would do it. I knew the exercise already. And then I didn't get billed from them. They said, dude, you've paid us so much over the years. That's a freebie. It's on the house. You <laughs> so, go. No, I, get, I get the frequent flyers at PT, but. Oh, no. But everybody is going to get there. So you, I think if you can be as strong as you are, as you get older and you are going to get older, you don't want to have that muscle. Yeah, it, it certainly helps. I won't, I won't have it as much as I do now. I'm not going to walk around at 270 pounds and I'm, and I'm 60. But. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined CDL 1000. Absolutely. Uh, I was born and raised on the East Coast, uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. We moved to Eastern Iowa when I was in my teens. My, my wife where in day. Iowa? Cedar Rapids. Nice. So we'll get to the career highlights because that's actually where I got my start in the industry was in Cedar, in Cedar Rapids. And most folks know there's only a few places you can work there in the industry. Met my wife there. We met, started having kids. And so now we have four children. We now live in the Chicagoland area, but got my start in the industry after graduating from Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids with a degree in psychology, which did nothing for me. And I started working at a small brokerage that got absorbed by CRST. And I worked there for about two, two and a half years. I know those guys. Oh yeah. You know what? I am so appreciative of my time there, even though it was a, an incredibly structured area and I had my own issues with how the promotion process worked, but it got me into the industry that has now offered my family a tremendous amount of opportunities. So I, I'm incredibly thankful for my time there. But that said, we decided to move to Chicago because I hated living in a small town. Cedar Rapids is small for me because it was only 120 some thousand people. And I'm used to the District of Columbia and Northern Virginia. And we decided on Chicago and it was the best thing for me in my career. I helped start a couple of brokerages. I helped grow some. One of the ones we started was through a few acquisitions purchased by Blue Grace Logistics. I moved on from there. I, I ran a private carrier in Waukegan, Illinois for about five years. Did a lot of stuff for them. It was awesome. That was my first foray into leadership in the industry. And from there, I moved on and got uh, sort of the first group of industry hires at Uber Freight. Helped bring them out of stealth mode right as I got on board. And in 12 months, we were hitting a billion-dollar run rate from when I started. So it was just unbelievable ride. Uh, so much fun, incredible people I met there. And that's probably my career. I've had uh, some cool stops along the way, working with 
unbelievable organizations, Quad Graphics, Shipwell, Metaphor, incredible people over there, uh, Peter Ryan and, and everybody. And that brought me here to CDL. So you had options. Why did you join CDL 1000? What did you see that you said, yes, that's where I belong? I came here because I had some friends that worked here and they mentioned to me that there were operational opportunities that my expertise would be able to assist. And what I saw was a business that was exciting. It was young and they were doing things a little bit differently. They were focused on some different niches or what I thought were niches in the industry, specifically drayage, but then leveraging technology as people have been trying to do around the truckload and LTL sector. And that excited me. I think technology is an important piece of of both operations, but just as your differentiator. And so as I saw that and dug into what they were doing and what they were trying to do, and then the really big plans as we got into that kind of 36 and 60 month type of vision, I got very excited about that. I got excited about working with young leaders who in this case, our entire C-suite is younger than I am. And I'm only 41. So it was very exciting to be around that where I would be able to learn from them and vice versa and really create a culture of uh, symbiosis and and collaboration, which is really what I wanted to do and create this intellectual ecosystem within the organization I was a part of. And that's what I saw as my opportunity here at CDL. Very nice. Very nice. I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families, and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor, and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen, and please consider volunteering. So getting back to it, so you touched on it earlier, but tell us again, who's the sweet spot for CDL 1000? Our sweet spot is enterprise level, so you picture your billion-dollar-plus organizations with a significant amount of inbound and outbound or import export and drayage business. And then what we do is we complement that with our visibility technology in the ports and then our truckload capabilities to really allow a complete port to door or port to to dock experience with complete line of sight to everything that our, our clients do. So again, visibility is table stakes for most supply chain at this point. And we really give folks a a one-stop shop. And then on the carrier side, we allow carriers to quickly grow their business with our technology platform, but also diversify if they want to get into either truckload or drayage, again, with our relationship-based carrier program. Yep. And you mentioned visibility. And you said before we hit record, I don't want to talk too much about visibility because it feels like it's one of the table stakes to some extent. But that's when it's domestic. It feels like um, drayage traditionally, I think, was a little behind on the visibilities. And as a, someone who has been a shipper uh, and a receiver of stuff that's come from overseas, you go, yeah, it takes a, a month on the ocean. How long is it going to be in the ports? When is it going to clear customs? That is the hard part. All logistics is hard. But that And potentially the expensive part. Yes, yes. And please explain why that gets expensive. Yeah, so it gets expensive with your demerge and your storage charges where if a container has not cleared customs or it's sitting in the port and basically you're not aware of it and it begins to accrue because what the ports have seen is there, one, there is a financial opportunity for them, but then two, they need to continue to flip, turn and flip the the ports to keep those containers moving. So we saw this significantly in in 20 and 21 and into 22, where there was tons of port congestion. We all remember seeing the pictures of the hundreds of ships outside the port of Long Beach. And 
what we've done is we developed a technology and a platform that APIs directly into the port systems throughout the United States, the major ports, your, L- your LAs, your Long Beach, your Jersey, Savannah's and the like. And we get visibility all the way down to the stack and the position of the container. And we also know up to a week out when it's going to arrive. So we can prepare both our network and our clients. And we can be very con- consultative as far as when we're going to be bringing those in. Additionally, we've uh, incorporated uh, transloading services around the port of Long Beach, actually inside the port uh, where containers can be empty and then repositioned back into the port itself and not incur those types of demerge charges. And so it, when I talk about 3PLs and those intermediaries in the space, for us, our differentiator is that we're able to reduce and or eliminate demerge and storage charges in the ports, which allow for a more scalable and a more predictable initial experience into the North American supply chain. Yep. And so we worry if we lose hours on the over the road part, but we lose days in the port and sometimes weeks. Yeah. yeah during the pandemic, maybe months, but you mentioned demurrage and detention. Those are two charges. And I think one is for the container. So the container company says you are using our container beyond your allotted time. So we're going to start penalizing you. Penalties start off small, but get worse and worse as time goes on. And then the one, I don't know which is which, but then the other is you're using up space at the port and they charge you rent for that space. I forgot which is to merge and which is detention. So you're getting paid, you're paying not only for your shipment, but now you're getting dinged by the port. And again, they, their job, they're just, they're like anybody else. They need stuff off their lot. But during the pandemic, we had a problem with, we they couldn't load it. And you're getting hit with detention and demerge. And you're like, I can't get my truck in there to move it. So it was brutal. It was insane. And we saw what happened with Bed Bath & Beyond there to the tune of $200 million that essentially put them out of business with those charges. And now they're dealing with the whole fallout of that with their creditors. And uh, another example was it's a, a large manufacturing company. I won't say who they are because they are technically a client of ours, but they're based over in Korea and they incurred $300 million in demerged detention and storage charges in 2021 alone. And they pass the savings on to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And which brings us to our topic today. I wanted to talk to you about the three pillars of freight operations. And I think when I think of logistics companies, when I wrong way to say it, when I think of freight brokers, when I think of three PLs, they are usually very focused on sales, sales. And I'm from automotive, and I was an ops guy. I was an engineer, but I was a supply chain guy. And I remember going to a little three PL, and you quickly realized that yeah, operations is super important. It's tenth on the list. The first nine are sales. But having said that, we know in a down market that there's people who are going out of business. And a lot of times it's because they don't understand their costs. They don't understand their operations. And that is not just freight brokers. That is also carriers. I think I wouldn't say it's the bigger carriers. I'd say it's obviously this stuff skews to smaller companies that don't pay attention to it. Because if you're a small company, you're like, I'm not worried about ops. I'm worried about getting a new sale. If I get a new sale, I'll hire some ops guy at some point. But in this business, it's real easy to let the operational cost spiral out of control. And before you know it, you can't dig yourself out of that operational hole. <laughs> Correct. Correct. You know, ops is, in my view, ops is as crucial to your business as sales. And obviously, I'm biased because I work in ops. 
But the way I like to explain it is you, know, you bring in all the customers you want. If you can't execute and you can't service them, you're either going to have a revolving door or you're just not going to have them. And so it makes sense to, to invest in your operation, not only in, in your technology, but also in your people to make sure they're trained, make sure they're taken care of. And, and we'll talk about this with me when I talk about the three pillars that I focus on, because these are all intertwined as well. They're very distinct, but they are still intertwined. And they can create a flywheel effect for each other, which is very positive for your business. And to your point, with this being a down market, this is the time to focus on operations because when you gain efficiency, when things are light, you realize the efficiency when things get heavy and when the market turns up, which we are already beginning to see some of the the, the warmth in the market. It's not heating up per se, but it, it's warming up. I'm hearing the same thing. Somebody said it to me this morning. And by the way, the way I look at it, I've helped very large companies select 3PLs, brokers, or not more 3PLs than brokerage, but companies that spend $100 million. And you don't talk to just the sales guy. You go quickly. The sales guys are super important. I'm not going to d- diminish their role in it, but you want to meet the ops guys who are going to manage your business. So we can easily say, oh yeah, ops is in the back room. You don't need to see those guys. It's a stupid way to live your life. And I think the best sales is really solid operations. And man, I'm, getting, I'm biased because that's where I come from. But And honestly, the best salespeople are former operators. Yes, yes. And I also say this is that once you're an ops guy, you see the world a different way everywhere you go. Anyway, we're talking about the three pillars of freight operations with the strongest man in logistics, Robert Baines. Robert, what is the first pillar of freight ops? Extreme ownership. And when I say extreme Uh, ownership, I think a lot of people will use the term own this or act like an owner, think like an owner, right? But how much do you truly own in your job? And that's a question for you to answer, the, the listener or anybody that you know comes across this. Uh, I stole this or borrowed it, R&D, Robin Duplicate, uh, from the book Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. And Jocko explains that extreme ownership means taking a look at every angle that comes at you from a business perspective and planning for that. And he gives examples throughout this book uh, in two ways. Uh, the first is always an example in a time of war and then in a time of business. And because he, he, has, he runs a consultancy now and he, so one, it keeps your attention because you have these very exciting. And when I mean exciting is because it's an insane type of thing. When you're talking about the attacks on Fallujah and some of these big insurgencies that. Yeah. He's a former Navy SEAL. I don't know if you're ever actually a former Navy SEAL. He, he's a SEAL. A Navy SEAL. A SEAL. <laughs> and, and he has he a force of nature to For a lot of things. Yeah. And his book has been mentioned on my podcast probably more than any other book and by CEOs usually, founders, people like yourself at the higher higher level of companies. This is the way they look at the world is extreme ownership. And by the way, if I could just add, add my own, I listened to the book. I was listening to it a few weeks ago. And I think the way it started is she starts the whole discussion of his view of extreme ownership. There was a a mission that went bad. People were killed. It was a joint mission between Iraqi forces and U.S. forces. And they were doing the dissecting the what went wrong afterwards. And everybody was raising their hand. I did this. I did that. But ultimately, Jocko took everybody's two cents and then reflected on it and then finally said, I own it all. I'm in charge of this mission. And when he went, when he had to present to the higher ups, he said that was very likely a place he would lose his job 
they kept him and maybe to some extent because he said it's my fault that guy said he didn't do this right that guy said he didn't the training resources clarity that they needed from me wasn't there as a result i'm a hundred percent responsible and that's what i so anybody that reports directly to me at some point will read this book alongside we usually do a group study of it and it doesn't matter if they are seat level we're talking a, a an operator somebody who appoints loads every day and is just starting their career all the way up to the vp level i have them read this book alongside me and the reason I do that, because I've read it a dozen times at this point, and it's important for me as a refresh. In many cases, it's the first or second time possibly these people have ever read it. And to your point, understanding, you always think in the context of knowledge, you have to think in the context of somebody who has nothing and no knowledge like you do. And you have to get them to your level and get them to that level fast so that you can execute at the speed you need to execute. And so extreme ownership is pillar number one to me. Because that, if you can't own what's happening, everything else falls apart. Yep. And I say this all the time on my podcast. You have to train not only your people, but you also train your customers about this. And what I mean by that is I liked carrier scorecards when I used to manage uh, 3PL. And I would always say to my team, don't clean anything up. But every late shipment lets us understand what went wrong. And let's not do it again. Let's explain what we did wrong to the customer. And every once in a while, someone would get into that mode of, this is really bad. So what are we going to say? What's the story we're going to tell? We're going to say it just exactly it is. And I, I remember talking to one of my customers. I said, they said something to me like, you guys are exceedingly honest about this. And this is why we're getting better all the time. And I said, yeah, we are exceedingly honest about it. But you're also open to us making mistakes. And we didn't make a ton. Don't get me wrong. We weren't dropping the ball. But if somebody, if Robert, I'm answering to you and every time I make any minor mistake and I go, hey, Robert, I, I blew it on this one and you blow up and threaten to fire me, guess what? You aren't going to hear about the problems for very much longer. <laughs> That's one of the empowerment pieces I talk to people about when they begin this leadership journey through extreme ownership is you have to empower people to fail because when they fail and they find out that it's not a death sentence, they, then they are willing to make calculated decisions versus What's the fastest, least wrong thing I can do to not get yelled at? Yes, yes. And it's, it's I always say it, it says, if you kill the messenger, they will stop coming. <laughs> that's what, that's the way it works. So there's companies, and we've all had a boss or a customer who wouldn't let you be honest. And you realize after a while, I would love to be completely open and honest with you about this, but you want to say, but you can't handle it. <laughs> so we will clean it up and we, there'll be a, we'll put a whole bunch of icing on this cake, but don't, you don't want to take a bite of this cake. Yeah. You can only put so much lipstick on a pig. So anyway. Yes. And I would also say that when it comes to logistics and transportation, I look at extreme ownership as if something your customer is, is struggling with is something that is close to what you do. If you can grab that and say, we'll do that from now on. If they say, oh yeah, we need a, an extra field here, but it's not in the software. Like we'll, we'll get it in the software or we'll add it post. But I, I used to say that to my people, anything that they complain about to you, take that as an order. Let's figure out how to solve that. And they're not complaining to you. For, maybe they don't expect you to take it over, but that's where customer delight comes in where you go, God, everything I throw at these guys, they pick it up. And that leads us to the second pillar. Yes. What is the second pillar? Customer experience. And I started ah. this 
again, I, I read a lot. So I do a lot of Robin duplication from books. This came from the Amazon way and customer experience is what Amazon focused on from the jump. That's what they cared about. And Jeff Bezos would talk about this ad nauseum at the investor meetings to the point that he was almost voted out a couple of times during the first two decades in Amazon. And can we all <laughs> think for a second of what would happen if he was, but he talked about, we're not going to be profitable. We're not going to be profitable. He focused on customer experience first, and he wanted Amazon to become so ubiquitous in the human existence and human experience that it would essentially become a, a, a verb. It hasn't quite got there yet, but like, I will, I'll, I got it on Amazon. How many times have we all said that I got it on Amazon? I got it on Amazon. And customer experience was so important to him that he spent billions of dollars to create it. And now his team also practiced extreme ownership. And because of that, they created incredible customer experience and it keeps people coming back. Now, some people have their regular orders. I know I, I can tell you, I spent a significant amount of money on Amazon because I got four kids, I got a wife, I got three cats, I got a dog. Every one of us has stuff that gets delivered. Almost they own you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I do the cost analysis from the time it saves me, as well as the, the money itself from some of the products, it probably pays for our family vacation every year. So it's worth it to me. Yep. I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Green Screens. That's greenscreens.ai. Green Screens is a dynamic pricing technology for the truckload spot market that delivers buy and sell side market intelligence to help brokers and 3PLs grow and protect their margins. Freight brokers and 3PLs using Green Screens gain the following advantages. Faster pricing for both buy side and sell side transactions. Pricing that is more accurate and more likely to win profitable business. Guys, dynamic pricing is the next killer app. Hundreds of freight brokers are already using it because it enables them to develop faster, more accurate quotes. This is the time. Check out Green Screens in the show notes, greenscreens.ai. So getting back to it, guys, I'll throw this out there while he was developing that customer experience forever. It must have been, I don't remember, you could look it up, forever there was a debate about Amazon because they made no money. So if you said... Amazon's got this great customer experience. They're like, they make no money. It seemed like they would never make money. And so people say, yeah, it's a billion dollar company that's not near profitability. It's a just kept growing and growing without profitability. And now you go, oh yeah, that I guess those days are in the past. I said this the other day on my podcast. Amazon's worth about a trillion dollars on a good day, I think. And Jeff Bezos is worth 1.7 billion or 170 billion. So 830 billion of the wealth created by Amazon is with the rest of us. We all got a little bits and pieces of it. it it's just a, a gift to the world. It's interesting for sure. So what is the customer experience? What's that mean where you guys are at uh, doing the biz you're in? So for us, and, and when I talk about that, I speak generally about customer experience uh, in the 3PL and intermediary space, but then also specifically with us. Customers don't want surprises, especially when it comes to freight. We deal with, and let's be real, 80% of shipments go off without a hitch. No one hears about them. It's the 20% where literally billions of dollars are made in our space. And we want to make sure that our customer experience is, is positive, even when things go wrong. We're upfront. We're honest. We are proactive. We come with solutions. And these are very generalized statements, I understand. 
That's really what it comes down to. And it's focusing on that. And when someone ever comes to me and says, I don't know what to tell this customer. First thing I ask is, okay, if you were the customer, how would you want to hear it? <laughs> you know what I used to say? To, when, what I used to say, hey, when in doubt, go ahead and tell the truth. <laughs> go ahead. Because <laughs> if they come back and say, I didn't like that. I, I get it. I didn't like it either, but it happened. Versus, why'd you lie to me? I'd rather have that conversation. <laughs> what, one of my guys, and I heard him say it one time, and it just irked me. He goes, our carrier didn't do what they were supposed to do. And, and then and I was like, can I talk to you? I was like, who picked that carrier? He goes, we did. I go, we're responsible. We're 100% responsible for everything because we don't own the trucks, but we, we picked the guys we work with. And I said, so when you're blaming him, he's on our team and you're blaming him. And I said, and it sounds so bad to go, oh, it isn't me. <laughs> it's so somebody else did it like a child. <laughs> I've consulted with a couple of shippers and, and I got a similar type of you know response from a, a 3PL. And I was like, well, here's a problem. He he represents you. And by the way, he's your ringer. He's the guy you brought in to do this. It's like when you're on playing a pickup basketball or pickup soccer game. This is the guy I brought in to help me win. Whoops. It's not extreme ownership. And that's really bad. I, again, that, and if you hear it, it just, it, if you're of your mindset, if you're my mindset and many other people, it's like nails on a chalkboard where oh, yeah. he's kind of points the finger to somebody else. You're like, come on, dude. <laughs> anyway, so we talked about extreme ownership. We talked about the customer experience. What's the third pillar of freight ops? Once again, stealing from the Amazon way, free cash flow. And this, for some people, this is going to hurt when I say this. You can't spend revenue. You can't spend gross margin. You can't even spend EBITDA. None of that stuff matters. Now to you, those listening, it may matter to you because that's what you report to your investors. It may be what you report to your VC fund, or if you have to do investor, like whatever. Free cash flow is the money that you have that you can actually spend. And the, I, I had one of my people ask me, can you explain this to me? Because I, I don't understand the pillar. I said, great. How many people do we all know that make 50, 60, 100, 200, $300,000 a year sometimes, but they still live paycheck to paycheck or month to month? Their free cash flow sucks. Free cash flow is your ability to spend, not freely, not willy nilly, but your ability to react fiscally to your business needs. And what does that mean in a down market? That means that if you need to, you can buy some market share. You can invest in new technology initiatives. But also what free cash flow comes down to is this is the overall healthier business. I, I look at it too. If you look at from what we talked about fitness and strength and whatnot, I know my baseline strength at any one time. I can walk into any gym in the country right now with my gear and I'll squat a thousand pounds. No problem. So I know that's my free squat flow if we want to go that way. That's the baseline for everything. Now, you again, you can measure all these different ways, cash flow statements, projections, et cetera. But your free cash flow is king. And the biggest way that you deal with that is cash. Yeah, we know right now money's expensive and VC money is a little tighter. And they're looking for the same thing you're talking about here. They want to see free cash flow. And I've watched, I keep coming across Mr. Wonderful from... Uh, Shark Tank. And he always just says cash flow. And yeah, and you can't grow without free cash flow. And you can if you're taking VC money, but again, that's gotten a little more difficult. Hands will come back to roost at some point. 
Yes, exactly. Case in point, Uber. Yeah, please explain. So with Uber, you look at when they started Uber Freight, they, they were a broker to $27 billion in the bank. No one ever had that before. So they could buy market share. They could make all these different big plans. That was great. Now they're having to pay the piper where you've got rideshare and eats are making money and freight is weighing them down. So the roosters are coming home or the chickens are coming home to roost. That's why they've had to make cuts. Even with the, what I think was one of the best plays they could have done with the purchase of Transplace and all that managed transportation coupled with their power only network. All that was great. But at the same time, they still have to find these operational pieces to make sure that they can actually be profitable because at some point, especially as a publicly traded company, they don't want you to be a nonprofit. They want you to be an actual viable business and free cash flow is what is going to right. to impact that. And, and again, I, I mentioned it just before was knowing and understanding your order to cash cycle and shrinking that as much as you can is what directly impacts your free cash flow. Yep. So I know I'm going to lose you in a few minutes. Final thoughts on the three pillars of freight with the strongest man here in the logistics business. These three pillars are, they encompass a lot of things. It's not everything. But the biggest thing for me when I think about this is the C-level person can impact all three of these directly. And your business will always be determined by, like everything, your weakest link or your slowest person. And so being able to have people know that the activities they participate in directly impact the business in these ways and constantly reinforcing that. To me, that's how you build buy-in, you build strong culture, and you empower people to make decisions when all they're focused on is, am I owning what I'm doing? Am I creating a good customer experience? And are we going to get paid? (laughs) I love it. I'm a simple dude. But this comes back to the fundamentals, right? It's not fancy. It's the blocking and tackling. That's what it always comes back to. So, Mr. Bain, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you who are killing it in the space. Who else should I interview? I'm going to give you two names, and then I'm going to prop them up because one, they're my friends, and that's what I like to do. First things first, Curtis Garrett. (laughs) Curtis Garrett is doing awesome things in the thought leadership space, but specifically around demystifying LTL. And we talked before the show, that was the original idea behind Logistics Blog, I believe. Yes, yes, it was. I When I came from automotive to logistics, I was doing LTL. And they have so much jargon. Trucking has a lot of jargon. When you come to a new space and all that jargon, and by the way, when I was a young person, I never asked about the jargon. It was like, I don't want to expose myself. But when you get to LTL, and I'm, by the way, I'll, I'll be nice about it. LTL has ridiculous jargon. I think that's being kind to call it ridiculous. (laughs) Unreal. And it's slowly changing. And again, the people who are living it today, they didn't create it. They are dragging it out of the nonsense that it's been for so long. (laughs) So I would love to interview Curtis about it. So Curtis Garrett, demystifying LTL. Who else should I? If you can get him on, because he can be a challenge to get on with his schedule. And just to be fair, he's very particular about his time is Chris Glotzbach. First things first, anybody that's met Glotz, they they know his very deep voice. It's very distinct. He has the voice for radio even more than I do. But his pedigree is unbelievable. C.H. Robinson, Uber Freight, Ship, now he's at Penske. He has built incredible teams, incredible books of business, can take the most complex, complicated supply chain situation or issue or technology and simplify it so even somebody like me can understand. But also take it up to the level of those sports technical experts and speak on their level as well. And so you can flow in those spaces and then also do it in a way where you leave the conversation feeling better than when you got there. And 
I'm always partial to Chris because he's a personal mentor to me, but just one of the finest human beings you'll ever meet. Awesome. Awesome. I, I told you before, if we were talking before we hit record, I think I met him at Manifest, but you bump into so many people at Manifest. Oh, yeah. I think oh, yeah. I talked to him, but uh, I'd love to talk You'll to hear him. the voice. You know. <laughs> yep. So what conferences will we see you and the CDL people at? You'll see a few of our guys at some various uh, conferences next year, probably Rilla and, uh, and TPM. That's where we tend to uh, hang out at. I will be at Manifest in uh, Las Vegas in February. That's my favorite conference. I will Vegas. be there. And that's also my favorite city, so I will be there. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. By the way, I did see you at Manifest last year, and I remember thinking, oh, that's that Robert Bain. I want to go introduce myself. And it, by the way, you, you know how this happens. You're in conversations with somebody. You want to be that guy looking over their shoulder like, you're not important to me. But I did see you. and That happened a few times where I was like, I'll catch up with them later. And I never did. Finally getting to do Tough this. to miss. I, I do take up a lot of space. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I love your three pillars. We, we, all need to, we all need this reminder. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.